Welcome to episode 135 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, a family physician and associate professor at Rush University. And I'm Gary Forenchik, a general internist and professor of medicine at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. Combining my love for history, baseball and medicine on this day in history in 1920 ray chapman a shortstop for the cleveland indians was struck in the head by a pitch uh, by carl mays um, and died the next day the only person in baseball major league baseball history to have died on the field what's ironic is that it took a couple of decades after this before teams started wearing um, helmets and it wasn't until 1971 that major league baseball mandated that all batters wear helmets so there you have it well, my sister and her uh, kids just came over from London for a few days. And the one, one thing that her son really, really wanted to do was go see a Tigers game. So they saw the Tigers beat the Twins um, uh, last week. So that was a highlight of their trip, I think. So on this podcast, we highlight patient... And nobody got nobody died, as far as I know. On the, field. <laughs> on the podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want to get all of the poems, you got to subscribe to Essential Evidence. You get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators in this podcast. doesn't represent medical advice and the endorsement of any product. You can get CME from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians by just listening and answering, I think, a couple of questions. Go to IFP.com, click on their education webpage, and find our podcast. This week, we're going to talk about treatments for osteoporosis and postmenopausal women, Evolocumab, uh, Rupatha, uh, adding that to a statin, they reanalyzed the data and got some really cool results. Mifepristone for painful adenomyosis and some real-world data comparing 24-hour ambulatory BP with clinical readings. Kate, take it away. I sure will. I have this uh, trial about looking at new or uh, a new analysis of osteoporosis treatments. So these investigators identified 69 randomized controlled trials. They enrolled more than 80,000 postmenopausal women with osteoporosis they were looking at, again, the various pharmacotherapies available. So osteoporosis meds, as we all know, are categorized into anti-resorptives or bone loss reducers. So those are your bisphosphonates, denosumab, and CIRMs, and anabolic treatments, bone builders. So that's teriparatide, a cousin analog, a parathyroid analog called, get ready, aloboparatide. I've been practicing that. And a medication I've never heard of or prescribed called Romosuzumab, which is apparently something called a sclerosin inhibitor. I hope later Gary will fill us in on all of these because, again, I've never <laughs> heard of them or prescribed them. Uh, anyways, they found that all of the included therapies were more effective than placebo, which is reassuring. Uh, then they used network meta-analysis to compare results among treatments, even when they weren't originally compared in uh, those original studies. That's the point of a network meta-analysis. So what they found was interesting. They found that teriparatide and aliboparatide were more effective than bisphosphonates or denosumab at reducing overall clinical fracture risk. So that was their primary outcome. For hip fracture prevention, teriparatide, aliboparatide, denosumab, and romasuzumab were all more effective than bisphosphonates. And those were also all more effective than bisphosphonates for preventing vertebral fractures. 
It found that the benefits of bisphosphonate do not wane with age and may actually rise in that category of old, old adults. Um, so people over age about 80. It's also interesting for me at least to note that major osteoporotic fracture was reported as an outcome in so few trials that they were actually limited in their ability to analyze that outcome, even though you know it feels to me like that should have been sort of a big outcome in all of these trials of you know osteoporosis. Uh, anyway, several of these medications have only been studied in a very few trials, uh, as few as three placebo-controlled trials for some of these medications, which also limited their ability to provide high certainty data. That said, I pulled the study because I thought it was, uh, it caught my eye. This is very different information than what we have, have been using. Guidelines do recommend bisphosphonates first line for almost every situation, except for people who are considered to be at very, very high risk. Uh, a fracture where they do recommend uh, the anabolic bone builders first. Um, but I thought this was uh, this was interesting. Again, the, the certainty of the data may be not as good as we would like, but I, I won't be surprised if this this gets a little bit of, uh, of, of airplay. Henry? Yeah, you know, I've been following some of this literature going back a few decades now, and I continue to be appalled and disappointed by the the lack of paying attention to the outcomes that matter. Those early studies of bisphosphonates, they would report total fractures, most of which were radiographically detected and not necessarily clinically apparent. We've also got tons of studies on bone mineral density. Don't get me started on that. And so this just continues to this disappointment around those things that our patients really need to care about. Loss of height. I understand there's a certain cosmetic feature to that and in severe kyphosis can affect lung function and the like. But fundamentally, it's those those wrist fractures and those hip fractures there are the ones that are the most devastating and yet we don't have adequate data to make good recommendations for managing our our, our postmenopausal patients yeah and I think the uh, the other angle of this uh, it'd be interesting to dig into this article a little deeper it has to do with this whole whole idea of a rebound phenomenon. Uh, in terms of a heightened fracture risk, once uh, at least denosumab and maybe some of these other monoclonal antibodies are um, discontinued, uh, within a year or so, you're starting to see a heightened risk of at least vertebral uh, fractures in those patients. So uh, be interesting to figure out if they um, actually incorporated that construct into their actual effectiveness analysis. You know, I'll add that I'm, I am glad to see this analysis because I, I've always thought it was, you know, kind of borderline or maybe even not borderline unethical to come up with a new drug for osteoporosis and compare it with placebo when we have perfectly good drugs like bisphosphonates. And, you know, I think, you know, to enter a clinical trial, there should be equipoise. And if we have an effective drug and we don't know if it's better than the existing drug, then, you know, they, they should be comparing them directly. Um, and that has not been done nearly often enough. Um, and the teriparatide, which is um, one of the recommended you know, drugs based on this analysis, is not cheap. $2,400, I think that's for a month, maybe. I don't know. It's kind of expensive. Yeah, everything except for the bisphosphonates are quite expensive. Uh, which is yeah, one bisphosphonates of the are quite cheap. Yeah, they're, they're very available. Uh, one other thing that, so, so uh, to Gary's point, that did not come up in the analysis, the, the question of the rebound uh, increase in fracture risk. The, the one thing that I should mention is that um, they, they did look a little bit at tolerability 
um, and adverse effects and found that overall all of the the interventions were were fairly well tolerated um, Henry? Yeah, I, I do need to at least uh, remind people the, on the um, osteoporotic compression fractions. Most of them are asymptomatic other than height, but they can, in fact, be um, uh, painful, especially if they are associated with trauma. So I don't want to just put all of them into that wastebasket of irrelevant data. But you know, there are there are some women who really are going to suffer from those, but it's the minority. Right. And they can also lead to disability and, um, you know, deformity that may, it may not be causing pain, but it may cause deformity and other symptoms. Um, Kate, you have a quiz for us. I sure do. To change the tone of this entire podcast completely, uh, which of the following cheeses was found to reduce hemoglobin A1C and magnesium levels and to increase serum, serum osteocalcin? a marker of bone anabolism in an absolutely real, genuinely serious 2022 study I read while brushing up on osteoporosis this week. Was it Jarlsberg, Cheddar, Camavert, Wensleydale, or Quark Cheese? Stay Kvark. tuned. Kvark, for the that's a good old German Kvark. Yes. Wensleydale was the favorite of, um, what are those cartoon characters? Anyway. Well, Wensleydale is also famous for Will Pickles, the um, general practitioner who did research on his practice um, for decades, uh, mostly on infectious diseases. Uh, John Hickner first uh, told me about Will Pickles. Okay. Wallace and Gromit, that's who does Wensleydale. That's what they go. I 100% included it as a Wallace and Gromit reference, but I appreciate that it is also a family medicine reference. All right, Henry, take it away. Okay, so this is a paper by Ervidi and colleagues published in BMJ Open. It was in December, and I'm not quite sure why it's late in coming to us, but I'm glad that we found it. It's a study that asks about the addition of evolocumab to statins and whether in high-risk patients it decreases cardiovascular uh, mortality. So the original Fourier trial was a randomized trial published in 2017, and they reported a small benefit um, in patients who are at high risk of death. Now, Mark, you wrote the, up the original uh, poem on this back in 2017 and pointed out that, yeah, it might reduce certain cardiovascular events, but it, in, in a group that's at high risk of death, it actually had no effect on death. Okay. So the authors of this reanalysis identified there were some inconsistencies in the original New England Journal of Medicine report and uh, data that was in the FDA um, approval So they decided, well, let's try and get the original um, full data set. Apparently, it was stonewalled by the FDA. You know, we love our conspiracy theories, but they went to Health Canada and was able to obtain the clinical study report, which is the full technical details. And what they found was that the death adjudication was unclear whether the people doing that were 
uh, masked to the allocation process. So through this whole process, they were able to obtain all of the, the death reports. They put together a committee and masked them to their treatment allocation. And they went through death by death, over 900 pages of data, to try to figure out what did they get right. Well, it turns out that almost half of the time, 41% of the time, the cause of death was changed by this new adjudication process. Ultimately, now this is where the statistical piece comes into play. There was a trend, that's the weasel word for we want the data to be true, but the statistical uh, probability was that this was probably due to chance. There, there were actually the cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality was actually higher in the group that got Repatha. The p-value was 0.08, which means that there was an 8% probability that these findings could be due to chance. So this is one of those um, expensive drugs. Last I checked on uh, goodrx.com, it's um, about $8,000 a year. And the data on this is that it might change other kinds of things, but not mortality. So, you know, this is a place where you know, we can at least think about what are the things that big pharma companies do well? Well, generally, the internal validity, the, the, the conduct of their trials are generally impeccable. They, on the other hand... Uh, and they're also very good at making money, right? So the secondary, those, they're places where they need to improve or that have significant limitations. Highly selected subjects, the kinds of people who we probably don't see in our clinical practices. They often use clinically meaningful um, um, outcomes that are composites or they use intermediate measures that we don't care about. They often censor data. The, the material that showed up in the New England Journal of Medicine paper did not look like what was in the FDA data set. And then they also don't account for multiple analyses, which can increase the, the likelihood of just by chance alone finding a, um, a meaningful benefit. And in this case, because of a lack of clarity, at least one of the major endpoints probably was um, an area to be faulted. Mark, what do you think of all this? Yeah, well, then they, did they publish all of the trials that they've done of this drug? That's yeah. another question. We don't know that. It is notoriously hard to get information out of the FDA um, and to find these clinical trial reports, which we, you know, in many cases pay for or are still paying for because we're paying for the medication. Um, yeah, this uh, this was, that doesn't particularly surprise me. And, um, you know, another another question is, how do they adjudicate the outcomes? And you should have a blinded panel looking at the medical records and deciding was this cardiovascular or not. All-cause mortality definitely didn't differ between groups. We know that. And, you know, all-cause obviously doesn't need adjudication. They just need somebody to check a pulse. And then you have the harms. When harms of drugs are assessed, it's often very inconsistent in terms of how they're classified, how they're categorized and adjudicated. So, yeah, this, this highlights one of the important issues with these kind of trials and uh, great work to, you know, kudos to the authors. Kate? Yeah, so from a clinical perspective, I'm going to go ahead and continue to not prescribe it ever. <laughs> uh, but from a, from a research perspective, is, is there a thought that they intentionally miseducated them, adjudicated them, or is there it like a research fraud thing? I can't or believe is, you would suggest that. Just, I'm just asking I questions, can't. Mark. Just asking oh, questions. my. 
<laughs> There's or... gambling going on in, <laughs> in this bar. Oh, oh my. Yes. Well, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, we don't know. And it could have been, it also could have been a, kind of an unintentional bias in that the local investigators like, oh, this person was taken to a path they must have died of something else because they were on this great drug. You know, so there could have been a, sort of an unconscious bias as well um, that easily could explain it. You know, uh, one of my favorite questions when we do our CME courses to ask the uh, audience how many people fill out death certificates. Everybody, of course, raises their hands. And I say, how many of you are 100% sure of what the patient died from when you signed that document? And nobody raises their hands. So it does get at the issue of, of attribution being a difficult you know, guess. It's an educated guess in a lot of ways. Um, I am also incredibly surprised that the NEJM would have allowed this article to be published without some attribution that there was blinded review of deaths. I mean, I think, you know, to me, that just seems like a duh when it comes yeah. to this idea when you're looking at both the cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. So, yeah, anyways, the New England kind of Journal of Drug Company Trials, yes. Well, as Mark pointed out, though, that this it was it was unclear from the um, the 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 study description as to whether or not there was blinding, but it was done by a single investigator. And to me, the difference between a panel looking at all of the data, hashing it out, arguing, making an att a death attribution is very different, as you point out, to a, a local single person attributing cause of death. Yep. Okay, great study. Thanks for finding that one. BMJ Open is a uh, relatively new journal that we just added to the 100 plus journals we review for poems. And I think they may have been digging back a few months just to catch up on that. That may be why we had this December study, but a great find. I guess I'm up next and I'm going to talk a little bit about mifepristone and adenomyosis. This was a study by Che Wang Sun and et al. in JAMA Network Open, effect of mifepristone versus placebo for treatment of adenomyosis with pain symptoms. So there had been a study back in 2020 by a group of Chinese investigators. I'm not sure it was the same one, but it was very poorly reported. You, you couldn't even tell exactly whether it was randomized and how many patients there were, but it found this large effect. And this is a much better uh, designed study that gets at this question. So adenomyosis is ectopic endometrial tissue in the uterine myometrium. It can cause, obviously, dysmenorrhea. Mineralgia, secondary anemia, dyspareunia, several other complications, including obstetric complications. So, so far, medical therapy has been of minimal effectiveness, and a lot of women choose hysterectomy or other surgical treatments for definitive therapy. These investigators identified uh, 134 premenopausal women, age 18 to 50, with adenomyosis, had to be confirmed by ultrasound or MRI, and they had associated dysmenorrhea. They were randomized to Mifepristone, 10 milligrams once a day, or placebo. Um, they concealed allocation. They were masked the treatment assignment and self-assessed outcomes using visual analog scales. They had complete follow-up for 94% of the patients three months later. The 94% is great. The three months, not so great. It would be nice to have a little longer uh, follow-up. So using both uh, intention to treat and per-protocol analysis, the mean change in baseline a uh, 10-point VAS score was 6.6 points lower in the mifepristone group and only one point lower in the placebo group, so a huge difference. They defined efficacy as at least a 20, a 30% reduction 
And the proportion with that kind of reduction was much higher, 92% versus 23%. Number needed to treat between one and two. Other outcomes, including complete remission of all symptoms, reductions in heavy bleeding, remission of anemia, also occurred significantly more often with mifepristone than with placebo. Uh, all adverse events were considered mild or moderate, and they were similar between groups. So this is really potentially a practice changer. Uh, bottom line, they found that mifepristone is effective and safe for the treatment of adenomyosis, um, including both dysmenorrhea and a bunch of secondary outcomes. Uh, it was only three months long. It can be hard to find this medication now because of limitations due to new laws on uh, medication abortion. Uh, so in some parts of the country, you may have trouble finding the, the drug. But uh, certainly, at least to me, a practice changer. Gary, any comments? Yeah, a number is needed to treat of one, one to two. I don't know, Mark, that I have ever in my history of doing EBM type analyses have ever seen an NNT of 1.6. I mean, to me, that's like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it just, it blows me away in terms of how, how effective this was. Yeah. I mean, I'd I, like I, to see it replicated. It's a relatively small study, um, but, I, you know, I, I certainly, it's based on these data, it's pretty good. Yeah, no, it's very, very impressive. I, I think the other issue is that this is a anti-progesterone, um, mm -hmm. and so it would be, I think, contingent, particularly for treating people, you know, potentially for years, you know, um, with this medication to try to prevent these symptoms. Uh, to have the adverse effect profile more fully, um, you know, explained over the course of, you know, certainly more months, if not years. Yeah. Kate, any comments? Yeah, I think your point about uh, it's, you know, virtually inaccessible for a lot of people is obviously problematic. Um, and so to some extent, that's going to be the biggest, you know, barrier to, to care here. I think the big group of people that, so adenomyosis is not as common as endometriosis, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see really similar um, effectiveness scale or uh, scores in people who have endometriosis, and that's extremely difficult to treat. Um, so I'd be really curious to see how well it works uh, in, in endometriosis as well. Yep. <clears throat> Stay tuned. Gary, um, ambulatory blood pressures, tell us about that. Sure. This is an article that was published in Lancet uh, in, um, I think, just in the last month or so. And I, I think, you know, one of the, as I dig into this literature more and more, it just blows me away how inaccurate clinic-obtained blood pressures are. There is study after study after study that have just shown that they're really, um, you know, the, the accuracy of those, you can't rely on it, basically. Uh, and certainly the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and the, uh, you know, the uh, American College of Cardiology both recommend out-of-office blood pressure measurements uh, to both confirm the diagnosis and for titrating blood pressure medications. Um, and this, I think, is yet another potential nail in the coffin when it comes to potentially thinking about using clinic blood pressures in terms of making management decisions. And it really looked at um, the link between the methods of blood pressure measurement and patient outcomes. Uh, an absolutely gigantic study in which they had 59,000 primary care patients, average age of 60, about roughly half were uh, women, half were men, and about 60% of them were being treated for hypertension. Uh, they looked at their clinic obtained blood pressure and then compared it to the 24-hour uh, ambulatory blood pressure measurement. And then after almost 10 years, asked the question, did either of these methods um, predict uh, for outcomes of cardiovascular, both total mortality and cardiovascular mortality? Um, so a couple of, uh, of uh, 
points that I thought were in, important. I, honestly, one of the biggest ones for me was that the mean clinic blood pressure among these 60,000 patients was 20 points higher systolic and 10 points higher diastolic than the mean 24-hour blood pressure uh, measurements. I mean, just to me, those are huge numbers in terms of the differential, and that's averaged over 60,000 patients. And the correlation between the clinic and the 24-hour blood pressure uh, was really quite poor, I think, about 0.4 to 0.5. Then they asked the question, okay, um, when we looked at the clinic blood pressure versus the 24-hour uh, ambulatory blood pressure, and we looked at the outcome of all-cause mortality, which one was better in terms of predicting that, again, after 10 years? And it turns out that for every one standard deviation increase in the patient's blood pressure, uh, the clinic systolic blood pressure really had no, when it was fully adjusted, had no significant correlation with outcomes, whereas the 24-hour uh, uh, ambulatory systolic blood pressure um, for every one standard deviation predicted a 41% increase in the particular outcome. Um, they also um, looked at the phenotypes of blood pressures. So you're everybody's familiar with white coat hypertension. There's also masked hypertension where people have normal blood pressures in the clinic and elevated at home and sustained hypertension. And one of the other major take-homes for me was is that the hazard ratio for this outcome for patients who were diagnosed with white coat hypertension was actually less than one. <laughs> so it, at least in this study, it suggested that white coat hypertension was not associated with a 10-year cardiovascular or total cause mortality uh, outcome. Um, finally, uh, although I, boy, I dug into this article and really tried to find out how they measured this and what, what they used, but it was the nighttime systolic blood pressure turned out in this study to be the most informative measure for both all cause and cardiovascular death. And, you know, I think last time or two times ago, we talked about, uh, you know, these night, night, nocturnal hypertension and, you know, should we be intervening on that, et cetera, et cetera. I think this evidence is still kind of in the process of being uh, kind of teased out. But this particular study did suggest that nighttime uh, systolic blood pressure uh, had the best predictive value for these, uh, for these outcomes. So long story short, um, study demonstrated that 24-hour blood pressure, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is more informative uh, than clinic readings and predicting mortality outcomes. Kate. So first, maybe that nighttime thing means that there's still hope for nighttime dosing of blood pressure medications, my favorite <laughs> ever. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, yeah, it's also hard to believe that people's blood pressures might be higher when they're in the doctor's office, just mind-blowing that people might be anxious in the um, a couple of years ago, the Annals of Family Medicine published a study that looked at the correlation between uh, home blood pressure readings and 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure readings. So I've, I've never worked in a place where we had access to 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure readings. So I've never, I would love to see one, but I've never seen one. Um, and I think they found that if more than three of your previous 10 home blood pressure readings were, were out of range, that that was um, both diagnostic of hypertension and, and a pretty good correlation uh, with ambulatory, um, or if you had hypertension, that that was a sign that it was uncontrolled, again, with pretty good correlation. And I've really clung to that study, so I hope I remember it correctly. Um, again, be practicing in a setting where we don't have uh, access to 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Um, but I think the point that our, our clinic readings are not good enough um, is starting to kind of, you know, seep out into practice. Um, and I'm seeing a lot more coverage and a lot more access to, to at least home blood pressure cuffs and, and people using that a lot more um, to, to um, influence care. Yeah, I when uh, during the pandemic, I, I remember 
a few of my patients that we were concerned about their blood pressure and I just mailed them, you know, I just ordered on Amazon some, you know, relatively inexpensive blood pressure cuffs and just shipped them to, to four or five of my patients. And yeah. uh, hopefully yeah, that was helpful. A, a couple of points. CMS apparently does, um, so Medicare, uh, pay for a annual uh, ambulatory blood pressure um, monitoring. In previous, uh, it happened about two mm-hmm. or three years ago. So I think that's kind of an important correlate to this. I think the other one is uh, there's an article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, literally, I think, within the last, certainly within the last year, that actually asked the question, uh, 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure versus kiosk blood pressure versus home blood pressures. And home blood pressures are not just go out and take a bunch of blood pressures and come back in. There's a very systematic way to do that. But that article actually uh, documented, I think, to your point, Kate, is that home blood pressures, uh, when done systematically and you know under the right circumstances, are as accurate as ambulatory, 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitors, and certainly, possibly, in certain circumstances, easier to pull off. Yeah. Another, there's a um, st- the editorial in American Family Physician, j- the latest issue, I think, that does a nice job of critiquing. Uh, the SPRINT trial, and a big issue there is how they measure blood pressure. And if we try to apply the SPRINT trial in the way we normally apply blood pressure in the clinic and use those blood pressures and then use higher doses of medications to get the blood pressure even lowered, like under 120, over 80, then we risk you know hypotension and kidney problems and all sorts of other things. Henry, you, you had a comment too. Yeah, so this, this study... Uh, so first of all, the the clinic blood pressure reading was not the usual crappy things we used to do, just a one-time blood pressure reading. They actually did the average of two or three blood pressure readings at five-minute intervals. So they did a reasonable clinic blood pressure reading in this study. Uh, this paper was a statistician's dream. They had they had all kinds of data that they played with, as you pointed out, tens of thousands of participants, lots of data points, but they had they. They also used this index of informativeness, which I had never heard of before. And it was some composite of incremental decision-making changes and things of that nature. But, you know, no matter how they slice the data, the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring won out over the, uh, the, the clinic blood pressure reading. So here's my big question. All of those nag features that you get from your EMR that says your patient's blood pressure is out of range, when will those go away? Thanks, Henry. Okay, Kate, please grom it. (laughs) All right. So the question again was, which of the following cheeses was found to reduce hemoglobin A1C, magnesium, and to increase serum osteocalcin? Uh, Your answer choices are, was it Jarlsberg, Cheddar, Camembert, Wensleydale, or Cork cheese? The correct answer, folks, is A, Jarlsberg. So these researchers randomized 66 women to 57 grams daily of either Jarlsberg, the J group, or Camembert, the C group cheese, and followed them for six weeks, drawing a variety of cardiometabolic and skeletal serum markers. After six weeks, the C group was switched to Jarlsberg cheese daily for another six weeks, and the levels were drawn again. Their conclusions, and I quote, the effect of daily Jarlsberg intake on increases in S. osteocalcin levels is not a general cheese effect. It's Jarlsberg or nothing if you want those benefits. So were these, Jarlsberg, is that Danish? Is that a Danish cheese? 
I uh, was not did not come prepared to answer these specific <laughs> questions today. Yeah, because the the researchers Lundberg Glasso look like they may be from Denmark. I don't know. This may be some regional bias here, and stick it to the French, so <laughs> which I, is everybody's favorite thing to do in Europe. I think. Okay, so I did read the entire article. Um, it uh, so it sounds like the background was actually that it was known that there was this effect from eating Jarlsberg cheese, and then they were literally exploring to find out, was it specific to just this kind of cheese or was it specific to cheeses in general? Nice. And so and that's why they had to randomize them to different kinds of cheese. And to now we out. know. And now it we know. We also, it is but not we also know effect. that there's great variability. If you buy camembert or brie in the U.S., it is nothing like the camembert or brie that you get when you're in France. So, the, so there is that other component. So this is this could be a lifetime of study for somebody. <laughs> and in fact, it has been. Need to get some funding from Big Cheese. Yeah. The Big Cheese. All right. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Um, please tell your friends about our podcast. Rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. <laughs>